If you have your Bibles this morning, turn to the Gospel of Luke. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 4. Um, last night we shared, uh, we shared about clarity. Man, my hope is that through our time together last night and this morning uh, that clarity is had on several issues. Last night we talked about the reality that this job, although it is daunting, we hear numbers like 7,000 that still do not know the name of Jesus. Man, our, my hope was that you guys would be encouraged through what was shared last night. This, this task of cross-cultural church planting among unreached people groups, it is doable. It is doable. We also shared last night that it does not take a super Christian to be a part of that. It does not take a special type of person. God wants to use his church, every single one of us, to be involved. Yes, I know that does not mean that every single one of us will be going out there. But every single one of us should be participating in that task as a goer or a sender. There's just not that many other categories out there. You're either going to be going or you're going to be sending. He wants us participating in that. This morning... This morning we're going to be looking at two more topics uh, that I hope to bring clarity on. Um, these ones are a little bit, a little, they've got a little bit more kick to them, guys. Um, as the BM people that we work with uh, out in Papua New Guinea, as they say, man, this talk, it bites our stomachs. It bites our stomachs. It's hard, it's hard, but it's good. Please understand that nothing that is said this morning is meant to step on any toes I know that there are great, great things going on here at this church. I'm encouraged by the vision that this body has to be involved in seeing God proclaimed at the ends of the earth. This church is not perfect. There is no perfect church. You as an individual are not perfect. There is no perfect individual Christian. There will be areas of weakness in all of our lives. I pray this morning that if some of these things have a convicting work in your life or in the life of this church, that they would be received. I, again, don't know the personal aspects of, uh, of what's going on here. So just, just let that be kind of an overarching um, yeah, just a caution that, man, I'm, I'm not going, there's, there's no hidden agenda here. Uh, in Luke chapter 4, I've been talking and not turning. Luke chapter 4, um, the setting here is that uh, Jesus just, the beginning of this chapter, Jesus was going through, uh, was being tempted in the wilderness, and then he comes back from his temptation in the wilderness, and he is, he's beginning his public ministry. And he starts that, in Nazareth. That doesn't go too well. He gets rejected there. He leaves Nazareth. They don't have ears to hear. He leaves Nazareth and he goes to the town of Capernaum. And man, what a vastly different reaction he receives in Capernaum. They're astonished at his teaching. They're amazed at the power that he has over demons. Demons themselves are testifying to who he is. There's incredible miracles taking place. Simon's mother-in-law is healed. That's a miracle. And we pick up the narrative in verse 40. Look with me at verse 40. It says this, When the sun was setting, the people brought to Jesus all who had various kinds of sickness. 
and laying his hands on each one, he healed them. Moreover, demons came out of many people shouting, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew he was the Christ. Guys, that is the stuff of missionary legend prayer letters. I mean, that would be a good one to write home. What was happening in Capernaum was unbelievable. These were good things that were taking place. What a drastic change from Nazareth. Can you imagine how excited his disciples were watching this stuff take place? Oh my goodness, yes, we need more, more of these experiences. This was good, good ministry happening. It was effective ministry that was taking place. We read on and it says this. At daybreak, Jesus went out to a solitary place. The people were looking for him. And when they came to where he was, they tried to keep him from leaving them. They tried to keep him from leaving them. But he said, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns also, because that is why I was sent. Guys, he moved on from there, not because there was some sin in his life that, that pulled him out of ministry, not, that, not because he was burned out, from ministering to the Capernaumites, why did he move on from there? Was it because they had hard hearts? Was it because it was a Nazareth situation? Absolutely not. We already read that. Why did he move on? Because his purpose was to proclaim the good news of the kingdom in the other towns as well. This is the issue that I want to shed clarity on. And this is going to be a touchy one. The issue is this. Equality of opportunity, that's an issue to our Heavenly Father. That's an issue to our Heavenly Father. Now, please, please, please don't hear that and run away with it thinking, that's the biggest issue you're saying. That's the... No, I'm not. It's not the biggest issue. It's not the number one issue. But guys, it is an issue to our Heavenly Father, when He gives us the command to make disciples of all nations, that needs to affect the way that we participate in the Great Commission. If He said, man, I want you to make disciples, you know what? We could do that anywhere, and it, it, we could pour all of our resources resources into an area, and that would be okay, but He did not. He said, man, I want... My praise to be represented by every single tribe, tongue, and nation. I want my praise to have a fullness to it, a completeness to it. Every single people group will be numbered amongst those people standing in front of my throne, and they will be praising me. Why is that a big deal to him? Because the magnitude of what his son did on the cross, it is fitting, it is fitting that every single nation is represented as they praise him for what he did. It's that great. It's that great. It's not sufficient that he would only have Americans praising him before his throne one day. It's not sufficient that he would have half the nations represented. We know that everybody's not going to be saved, but he wants representatives from every tribe, tongue, and nation praising him for what he did. 
And in order to see that full picture accomplished, we need to look at how we are using our resources. We need to look at how we are participating in this task. It is not the number one issue on our Father's heart. He had other things that he was doing there during his time in Judea. But equality of opportunity was an issue. And as we make our decisions on how we use our personal finances, how we pray, how we use our time, how we participate in this task is... The equality of opportunity, is that even an issue that we're looking at? Would it be sufficient a hundred years from now for the American church to have invested everything into reached people groups? Do you think that that would be okay with our Heavenly Father? I would imagine not. We're going to play a video right now. Um, and guys, this video's got numbers, it's got statistics in it, and man, we can almost make statistics say anything that we want. Um, but if I was to stand up here today and say, hey, you know what, uh, about 43% of, of Christendom is, uh, is actually giving to see missions accomplished, you would hear that number and you would go, ah, you know what, okay, 43%, maybe it's 50, maybe it's 60, maybe it's 20. I mean, there's, there's always like this, this uh, you know, margin of error. The statistics that we're hearing, though, with how we are participating and seeing the 7,000 that have not had an opportunity to hear, the statistics that we're hearing about that are not 50, 20, 30, 40. They're one. They're .001. Okay, they're so minusculely small that it should that it should shock us. Those statistics, we can't just slide them to the side and go, hey, you know what, there's a margin for error there. Even if there was, we're talking about maybe from .001 up to two, and that's okay. Allow these statistics, these numbers to just sink on us and we'll pick it up after the video is done. In the beginning, God created everything. He created a world full of people to know Him and to be known by Him. This is the story of the Bible, God bringing people to Himself. And when we read the Bible, we see how God went to great lengths to do this and how much God cares about people knowing Him. You most likely already know this. And you probably live somewhere where people have a general understanding of this great love story between God and humanity. And if they don't know yet, there's probably somebody in town who can tell them. But did you also know that there are three billion people who will live and die without ever hearing this story? Not because they don't care, but because they don't have a choice. Nobody ever told them that once upon a time, God became a human just like them, so that he could teach them how to know their creator. 40% of the world doesn't know this, and they won't know this. Not unless something changes. Not unless someone goes to tell them. Jesus is our wonderful example. He left his natural home to come to us, and then he tells us to do the same thing. Because we love Jesus and care about the same things that he cares about, we care about this. That the whole world would know him. That every tongue, tribe, and people group would come and be able to worship him. So the question is, are we doing this? Going out into the world to bring the gospel to every tongue, tribe, and nation? Well, kind of. While churches do send people out, almost half the world still doesn't have any access to the gospel. 
But how is this possible? Aren't there people being sent? Well, yeah. There are about 400,000 people serving across the world today. But only 3% of them are actually going to the 40% who have never heard about Jesus. The other 97%, they're going to places that have already heard about Jesus. There's an imbalance. That imbalance leaves only one person for each 250,000 people who have never heard about Jesus. Put another way, we have a spirit-led calling to rethink our focus. When you look at how we use our resources, such as money, the picture doesn't look that much better. To be specific, Christians around the world are giving about 2% of their income to Christian causes. And less than 7% of that is going to cross-cultural workers, which means that only 0.1% of all Christian giving is going to cross-cultural work. And of that cross-cultural giving, only 1 one-hundredth of that 0.1% is actually going to those working with the 3 billion people who don't know Jesus, have no church, or any Christian neighbors. The other 99% of all cross-cultural giving goes to the rest of the world that already has Christians, Bibles, and churches. Are you seeing the imbalance? Only 3% of our workers with only 1% of our cross-cultural finances are going to the 3 billion people who have never heard about Jesus. So we have to ask ourselves, are we okay with this? We want those 3 billion people to hear about the kingdom of God and how much God loves them. There are 17,000 ethno-linguistic groups in the world. People who share language, culture, and common history. 7,000 of them are considered unreached people groups. These are entire cultures who have never heard the amazing story of how Jesus loves them and came to save them. God has called us to pay attention to this, to love and care for the same things that He does. He put this desire on our heart, to see the unreached reached with the amazing story of the love of God. We want to see lasting local church planning movements begin among these people groups that brings renewal and transformation among these cultures and societies. Why? Because God has moved our hearts to see the gospel transform whole societies among the unreached. We know this task is bigger than us. Many of the areas that are in need of the gospel are difficult and resistant places. It isn't something that can be accomplished overnight, but by the power of the Spirit, we endeavor to preach the gospel where Christ is not known so that God can be worshiped by all peoples. If we are going to see those 7,000 reached, guys, it's not going to happen unless we're getting strategic about our participation in the Great Commission. Uh, over in Papua New Guinea, we get, we see this uh, played out in how we receive new missionaries. New Tribes is a huge organization. It has a huge presence in Papua New Guinea. We receive about 10 to 15 new families each, uh, well, about every six months, um, so about 40 a year. And they come to the central location in Papua New Guinea. They begin learning the national language there, and they spend about six months there. And... Um, this this central orientation hub, we we started to see this phenomenon that most of the missionaries, because they were coming to this central location, the new missionaries, guess where they were going out and planting churches? They were going out and planting churches mostly in that general locale, in the amongst the unreached people groups that were right there, where their needs in other locations in Papua New Guinea. Papua New Guinea is a huge country the size of California. Absolutely there were. But 
most of them were going to that general vicinity right around this orientation center. Were there unreached people there? Were there work, was there work to be done? Absolutely. Was it good things that they were doing? Yes. But I, I share that story to underscore this point that most of our resources will go to the things that we hear most often about, the things that we are close to, the, the needs that we see with our own eyes and hear with our ears, those are the things that are going to grip our heart. That's just normal. That's normal. How is the people group in South America, how are they going to get their request to you guys? How are they going to send their request to the North American church? They have no opportunity to get our ear. It behooves us to know and realize that they are out there and that we need to be strategic in our participation in this task if we're going to see them reached. Are we balancing that scale? It's never going to be balanced, guys. And it, it ought, honestly, it ought not to be. It ought not to be. We should be participating in the things that are around us. And I'm not, I'm not putting those things down. But guys, should it really be where it's at right now? Should it really be? I mean, if we're going to see these 7,000 reads, should it really be that unbalanced? How is an individual, as a family, as a church being, and your participation in the Great Commission? Is the equality of opportunity, is that even an issue at the decision-making table? Turn in your Bibles over to... Uh, 1 Corinthians. We're going to leave that point, and uh, if that has work in your life, let it work. Uh, if, it, if it is welcomed, uh, then that's great. If it doesn't have work, then it will move on. Uh, but the last point that I want to touch on this morning, I want to talk about what prevents us as a North American church from being wildly obedient to participating in the Great Commission. When we, when we uh, shared the gospel with the BM people, uh, the first thing that we did on day one of the teaching that took three months to explain from creation to the cross what the gospel was, the very first lesson that we had, we strung up this 6,000 bead chain through the teaching house. I mean, we had to zigzag all over the place. And we told them, guys, listen, this message, it's not like your ancestor stories. This message had a beginning, and it took place here on earth. And we, we said, man, it started way back here when God created the earth. And then 4,000 years later, man, there was something that took place that was unbelievable. And we're going to tell you about that. And then what took place 4,000 years later, and we're, we just keep pointing to this B chain and we're hanging up index cards on it. Man, there was a big thing that happened right there. And then after that, the message of this big event, it traveled. It traveled through Europe where, where my coworker, my German coworker Thomas, he's from. They, they heard about this message. And then it traveled uh, over a little bit to Asia where my other Taiwanese coworker friend's at. And then it, it went up uh, over to North America and we're hanging index cards all along these 
chains, and we're saying, man, the, the American people, uh, the English-speaking people in England, they ended up getting their first Bible right here, and we're just trying to make the story real to them where they can go, oh, you know what? We're not talking about hocus-pocus here. We're not talking about something that never really took place. This thing actually happened in space and time, and we're hanging these things up there, and we come to the very, very end of the chain, and we're going, here it is, 2012. This is when you guys are going to be hearing about it. And uh, it, 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 they, they took in as much as they could. Three months later, as we presented the gospel and it began to sink in, we never took that chain down. We started having folks come to us going, wait a second, <laughs> wait a second. That thing, that event happened. Christ died on the cross for all of us. Why in the world did it take so long for us to get this message? Did you guys not have enough money? Come on, the one thing that they do know is, man, America is at the top of the food chain when it comes to finances. Did you not have enough money? Why did it take so long? And what about the group that's next to us? Man, they still don't have them. Why is it that we are at the very end of this chain and so many of us, so many of us have not heard yet? Man, we had some very, very honest and difficult conversations with those guys at that time. I think one of the big reasons why it's taken so long to see this thing accomplished, while the American church is unbelievably equipped to participate in this task, man, I think it's, I think it's this, this issue of prosperity, guys. We are blessed more than any nation on earth. And I will make this statement that us as the American church, we probably have a greater hurdle in front of us that prevents us from engaging in the Great Commission than any other demographic across the pages of history. The prosperity that we are blessed with is one of the greatest hurdles that prevents us from participating in this task. The American dream, the good life, the security. Man, people ask me, when you spend three, four years out in Papua New Guinea and you come back, do you experience culture shock? And, you know, I mean, we're not running around naked out there, so we know how to wear clothes. None of that stuff surprises us. But we come back. We come back, and you know what? You can control so much of your life here. I mean, from this little device, I can turn lights on and moderate the temperature. And, oh, my goodness, in my house, I can do anything I want. We control everything. There's this safety and security and prosperity. And to lay that down, oh, that is difficult. It's become so ingrained in the United States that it is so hard to put down and say, you know what? Yeah. Yeah, I'll walk away. I'll walk away from that. I will, I will put less into my 401k so that I can be participating more obediently to this. I will teach my sons and daughters how important this is to their Savior, even if it means they may catch a vision for it and go. Yes, it's that important to me. It's that important to me. My sons and my daughters may not grow up next to me. My grandkids 
may not grow up next to me, but that's okay because this is that important to my Heavenly Father. I'll teach my kids that. We're not the first, we're not the first church that has struggled with this, guys. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, if you've turned over there, uh, Paul has this to say to the Corinthian church. Corinth was the America of their day, unbelievably prosperous, and they fell victim to the same thing that we fall victim to. And Paul's got some pretty scathing words for them. He says this, already, in verse 8, already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. You have become kings, and that without us. How I wish that you really had become kings so that we might be kings with you. For it seems to me that God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession like men condemned to die in the arena. Guys, there's a difference between you and us. I don't know how you guys found it, but man, you found like the creme de la creme of Christianity. You, you've got it. You've, you, you're living the good life. You've got a piece of heaven now and somehow, man, we got the dregs, like we got the wrong version of Christianity. There's just a disparity between the way that you're living and the way that we're living. And man, we must be wrong. Man, the sarcasm is dripping off of his words. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as to men. We are fools for Christ, but you, oh, you're so wise in Christ. We're weak, but you're strong. You're honored. We're dishonored. To this very hour, we go hungry, thirsty. We are in rags. We are brutally treated. We're homeless. We work hard with our own hands. When we're cursed, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure it. When we're slandered, we answer kindly. Up to this moment, we have become the scum of the earth, the refuse of the world. Oh, my goodness. The difference between you, Corinthians, and us, it's almost impossible to overstate. You guys have found it. Guys, he could be writing the same exact words to the American church. Paul Washer says this. He says, persecution has never hurt the church. Only prosperity. Only prosperity. Oh, guys, that, that should terrify us. Now, listen, I'm not saying that the blessings are bad. God gives these things to us. But, man, if you think that they are not going to affect us if you're not careful... And you got another thing coming. Satan, I believe, has used so many of these good things to distract us, to entertain us, to keep our eyes from eternity and fix our eyes down here. We have a slice of heaven that most people in the world do not have. The danger in all of this, is that it dims heaven. It dims heaven for us. We enjoy the life that we have, and it dims heaven. And guys, make no mistake about it. When heaven is dim, the sacrifices that you ought to be making for eternity, oh, they make no sense at all. They make no sense at all. If our eyes are not fixed on heaven, why in the world would I make this sacrifice 
If my eyes are fixed down here, yes, I want my kids to grow up yet next to me. I don't want my child to get malaria. I don't want my child to have to deal with medical evacuations and all of that stuff. If my eyes are fixed down here, no sacrifice for that makes sense. But that's the danger of prosperity. It dims heaven. And I do not, like Paul in verse 14, say these things to shame us. And I really do mean us, guys. Man, I am a part of this North American blessed and prosperous church. I don't say this to shame us. Verse 14, he says this, I'm not writing this to shame you, but to warn you. Please, if we are not aware of this hurdle in front of us, it's going to sink us. It's going to prevent us from being wildly obedient in our participation to the Great Commission. I just want to close uh, with one story. When we, <laughs> folks ask us, Folks ask us a lot of times, man, I can't believe that you took your wife and your kids out there. I can't believe that you went out to that island and lived out there without, I mean, the, the clearer the picture we can present to them, the more their jaws drop going, you got to be crazy to go live out there. But guys, as I challenge you to live wildly obedient lives in seeing the Great Commission accomplished, I have this encouragement for you. There is no sacrifice that you can make that will not be worth it. That you will never stand one day in front of the throne of God and say, yes. Yes, it took the life of my wife. It took the life of my daughter. It took the life of my son. It took my health. It took my riches. It took my time. It took the best years of my life. My body was racked because I spent so much time in that location, there's no sacrifice that you will make that you will not be thankful for when you're standing before his throne room that day. We've been incredibly guarded by our Heavenly Father during the 12 years that we've been in Papua New Guinea. About five years ago, we were on the island, 80 miles from the mainland, no medical care, no way to get to the mainland where there is a rough uh, aid post. Um, and you have to leave our island by 12 o'clock. I mean, 12 o'clock's the cutoff time because 80 miles in a little boat, it takes about four hours. You can't be on the water at dark. There's no search and rescue. 12 o'clock's the cutoff time. I'm sitting in my translation office, and I hear this scream, and I run outside, and, and I see my son on the ground, and uh, blood's coming out of his mouth. And uh, his, his friend, it was his birthday, his friend had given him a birthday present. It was a sword. It was just a sharpened stick with a point. Um, he was running around with it, and uh, he had tripped. And this thing, I mean, it was a freak accident. Uh, as he was falling, the, the end of this stick stuck in the ground and the pointy part was sticking up and he fell and this stick it was just on the perfect angle uh his mouth was open because he was yelling and the stick pierced through the top the roof of his mouth and nearly came out his ear 
And he's screaming, I don't know, uh, I'm trying to take it all in and trying to calm him down. I get him up into the house and you know what, we, we uh, got him calmed down, we threw on a little Spongebob or whatever the stink we had back then, um, and he starts calming down and we're going, okay, you know what, uh, this is actually pretty good, you know, he's going to be okay. 11 o'clock, we're going, do we need to get him to the mainland? You know what, he's going to be okay, he's going to be okay. And... Uh, we calm him down, and we start looking in his mouth, and we see this hole, and we're like, man, that's not good. Uh, we get on the satellite phone, because there's no communication services. We get on the satellite phone. We're talking to the mission doctor. Hey, uh, what's going on? Do we need to get this guy out? No, nah, he, he, he might make it. He might be okay, but uh, man, tomorrow, tomorrow, just see if you can get him out. We're like, all right. We go to bed. We wake up the next day. He's doing great. He's doing great. He's starting to eat cereal and you know drinking fluids and stuff like that. And we're like, oh, this is awesome. We call him back, the, the doctor back. Okay, man, that's great. That's Praise God. Praise God. This could have been so much worse. 9 o'clock, he's doing good. 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, he starts complaining. 12 o'clock, he starts complaining. And uh, by 2 o'clock that afternoon, his neck... His neck was starting to swell, and uh, it was turning red, and we, we called back the mission doctor, and he said, he said, man, you got to get him out of there. You got to get him out of there. And he knew our situation. Um, we said, doc, we can't, we can't get him out. Yeah, sorry guys. Like, we can't get him out. Uh, it's too late. And he said, you got to get him out the next day. I mean, as soon as the sun comes up, get him out. And we're going, well, what's, like, what's going on? And he's saying, listen, like the, the likelihood, the likelihood of him making it through the night, it's not good. He said, the infection, the infection's gone into his throat. And his throat, his airway is just going to swell up, and he's probably, he's probably just going to suffocate. And so, my wife and I, my wife and I are, good night, I'm a blubbering mess up here. Uh, my wife and I are in bed that night, and guys, I cannot, I cannot begin to express to you uh, the emotions that were going through us as we were. We got him in bed, and uh, we're just praying. We're praying like crazy. God, please, please spare our son. And we don't know. We don't know if we're going to be waking up to, you know, to our son alive or our son dead. He's my only boy, um, and we're praying and we're praying. And uh, you know, I'll give you the spoiler at the end. He didn't die. Um, but as we lay there in our bed that night, I can tell you this. There was a peace that passes all understanding. There was a peace that passes all understanding that if he chose to take Brady, that would have been okay. That would have been okay. And you know what? Man, there is a lack of credibility uh, as I even say that, because he did not take my son. He did not take my son. But guys, I promise you, I promise you there was that peace there. There was that peace there 
if it costs the life of my son to see the BM people reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ, it would have been worth it. For Pete's sake, it cost the life of our heavenly father's son. It cost his son's life so that you and I may be reconciled back to him. There is no sacrifice that you can make that would be too great to proclaim the majesty of what he did for you and I to those who have not heard. Please, 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 as you evaluate your lives, as you evaluate how you're playing a part in seeing this commission accomplished, understand that it is our privilege to lay down whatever God has given to us for the sake of proclaiming his name to the ends of the earth. Uh, I don't know who's next. I'd like to close in prayer. Um, Let's pray.